My stole is not pink. Pink is not a liturgical color. My stole is rose. Rose is a liturgical color. Christ did not pink from the dead. Christ <laughs> rose from the dead. This is Gaudete Sunday. That's G-A-U-D-E-T-E, if you can picture that in your mind. It's the third Sunday of Advent. We light the rose candle. Some priests wear pink, I'm sorry, rose vestments. <laughs> it's called Gaudete Sunday because the entrance of the priests into the sanctuary, the prayer for the, the third Sunday started with that word, and that word means rejoice in Latin. It's one of the two refreshment Sundays in the church calendar. The last Sunday before the end of Lent, the last Sunday before the end of Advent. Um, the, uh, the traditional color is rose. It's to lighten up a little bit. We have the heavy purple for penitence, but then the last Sunday there's a little bit of a break. In some parts of the church in the Middle Ages, music was banned during Lent except for the last Sunday before the end when you had a little break, okay, a little bit of lightening up. And so the colors you see are lightened up. So the historical theme for this Sunday is rejoice. But in our, in our gospel reading, someone is not rejoicing, and that's John the Baptist. That was a segue in case it was so smooth you didn't see it. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a major figure in first century Judaism. If you were writing a book about Judaism in the first century, you spend an awful lot of time talking about John the Baptist. And I know that's the case because a guy did write a book about the first, century, uh, the first century Judaism in the first century. He was a man named Josephus. And he has a lot of things to say about John the Baptist. He goes on for pages and pages and pages about John the Baptist. Man, you should have heard that guy preach, talk about all his disciples. And then on, on one page, he writes, another teacher at the t same time was a man named Jesus. He was the Messiah, and he rose from the dead. But anyway, let me tell you some more about John the Baptist, because that's the big story. He's the big mover and shaker. But you know the story. John has offended Herod, the king. Herod has put John in prison. And John sends, the, sends a message to Jesus through his own disciples. He sends John the Baptist sends John the Baptist's disciples to ask Jesus a question. It's hardly a sincere question. It's a bitter question. John's expressing more than just his doubts. And Jesus certainly picks up on this. Jesus does not send him a word of encouragement, but he sends him a rebuke. Look what is going on. And then, let somebody who isn't offended by me be blessed. The Greek word for offended here is scandalon. We can say scandalized. John the Baptist is scandalized by what Jesus is doing. He doesn't just disagree with Jesus, but he's outraged at what Jesus isn't doing. And he's so outraged, his outrage has driven him to rejection. John is feeling this type of offense because Jesus has let him down. Jesus is not the kind of Messiah John wants. John had been preaching that when the Messiah comes, and the Messiah is coming soon, John the Baptist said, that the Messiah would bring a great judgment. Great judgment will fall. The wrath of God is going to fall. 
And John points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a short while later from his prison cell, John the Baptist says, I don't see this wrath and judgment falling. John has spent his career warning sinners to repent and escape the wrath to come. And John says, from my prison cell, I'm not seeing much of this wrath falling on God's sinners. There's a personal disappointment here, too. Jesus' failure to be John the Baptist type of Messiah is a personal disappointment. You'll remember, I'm sure, when, at the start of Jesus' ministry, Luke tells us this. Jesus is at the synagogue. Apparently, he had been teaching for a while because it was his time to read from the scriptures. And he read a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 4. Here is what Isaiah chapter 4 says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. What's interesting is When Luke tells us what Jesus read, Jesus left out two lines. He left out the last line, the day of vengeance of our God. And he left out the line, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Do you kind of see why John, who's been warning about the vengeance of the Lord for his entire career, sitting in prison, is a bit upset? Jesus is not the kind of Messiah who's bringing judgment, and he's not the kind of Messiah who is opening up the prisons. What John does not know is that God's wrath and judgment will indeed fall because Jesus has entered the world, but it will fall upon Jesus himself on the cross. But John is disappointed that Jesus does not agree with him about what kind of Messiah the real Messiah would be. And John is scandalized. He's offended by Jesus. And maybe today we live in a world that is increasingly scandalized by Jesus, offended by Jesus. But of course we live in a world that everybody gets offended by everything. Jesus says, what will I compare this generation to? He probably probably is making a reference to some kind of children's game that has died out or something. But little kids playing a game. We played the wedding pipes and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral dirge and you didn't mourn. What do you want? You want to be happy? I'll play the wedding pipes. You don't dance. What do you want? You want to be sad? I'll play a sad song. You don't mourn. What do you want? And then Jesus says, John the Baptist comes. He doesn't drink and eat. And everybody says, look at that demon-possessed guy. He doesn't drink wine. Jesus, I come, Jesus says, and I drink wine and eat food, and everybody says, look at that drunken guy, look at that glutton. He hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. What do you want? Seems like everybody's offended by everything. So maybe this reading is actually relevant to us today. Well, in the rest of our reading today, Jesus answers John's scandalized offense at Jesus. Jesus tells us there are two types of people who are open to the type of Messiah that he is. And he tells us that the people who are open to Jesus are the poor and the least. The poor and the least. These people, in general, 
are open to the leadership of Christ. And their counterparts, their opposites, that would be the rich and the most, are the ones who tend to be offended by him and scandalized by him and reject him without rage. Or at least they tend to be closed to his leadership, lordship. Jesus tells the followers of John the Baptist to go to John and tell him, well, it's in verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Tell John what you see. There are miracles happening. But something else even more powerful and more special is happening. The poor are getting good news. The Greek word translated good news here is euangelon. is usually translated by the word gospel. It means the same thing. That's what the word gospel means. It comes from Anglo-Saxon, a good spiel, a good story, good news. God spiel, the gospel, a good story, a good news. That Greek word, euangelon, is used in, in official pronouncements when something big and special and important has happened. We have copies of these where it says the, the gospel, the euangelon, the good news, the, the gospel of the crowning of the new emperor. The good news, the gospel of a military victory. In the secular world, the good news is that something has, somebody has done something that's made life better. A new emperor's been crowned or a great general has defeated an enemy invasion. Uh, somebody has done something. But in Christian usage, it's different. Christians speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. It's not that Jesus has done something, but that he simply is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that Jesus has accomplished great things, although of course he does, but the big deal is that Jesus is. He's here. His very existence is good news. Here's what I mean. The other historical religions we call them, in other words, religions who identify a founder, explain that somehow their founder discovered or had revealed to him or her a way to achieve, for want of a better word, let's just say salvation, okay? They'd been revealed, they'd been shown, or they had discovered a way to a better life. In Judaism, the two big figures, Abraham and Moses, God revealed to Abraham the covenant, God revealed to Moses the law, and now the Jews say we have a relationship with God and we have the laws that keep that relationship in, in, in check. Abraham and Moses had revealed to them the way to a better life. Muhammad said he went into a cave in Arabia. The angel Gabriel appeared to him and dictated to him poetry that he memorized and then he went, went to somebody who could write it down the way to a better life. Joseph Smith, Smith went out into his field in New York, dug up golden tablets, so he says, and used a seer's stone to be able to interpret them and to give a, to provide a way to a better life. In India, a man named Gautama, it's a great story. He's raised as a prince in a palace where he's never, he's never allowed to see anything bad. He's sheltered and spoiled his entire life, but one day he sneaks out of the palace and he walks through where the ordinary people are and he sees the four distressful sights. He sees a poor man, he sees a sick man, he sees an old man, he sees the dead body of a man. 
He had no idea these things ever had existed, but here they are all over the place. And he's so struck, he goes and sits under the Bodhi tree until he discovers the, the four noble truths that if you follow them will lead you to a better life. And to be just honest with you, if all you want to be is to be a better person, I mean, you might as well pick one of those. I mean, they'll work. Why not? Which, would make, which one would make you a better person, following the teachings of Confucius or following the teachings of Aristotle? But pick one. They'll both make you a better person. They'll work. But the Christian religion says that its founder didn't discover a way to find salvation. A way to a better life was not revealed to him. The Christian religion says that its founder is salvation. One person says, I can show you from what I've learned about finding a true path that will lead you to a better life. And there's a second person who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus doesn't promise a way to find a better life. He promises life as opposed to death. That's because the bare existence of Jesus breaks the steel barrier between God and humanity, between death and life, between sin and righteousness. Jesus pierces that wall. And Jesus says, it's the poor people who understand this. Now, Jesus isn't playing identity politics. We know that both rich and poor people came to Jesus even in the New Testament, okay. But he says, it seems to be that poor people get this a lot easier than rich people get it. All of us know about rich churches in big cities in America and Gainesville for this purpose is pretty big. Rich churches. And we've seen this in our own Anglican tradition where you can go into the church and you ask them, are, 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 are the people here are Christians? And they'll say, yes, we're Christian. We follow the teachings of Jesus. And if you say, what do you mean you follow the teachings of Jesus? They, they would say, well, we, we pay very special attention to what Jesus told us about how to relate to each other. And... Um, and, and so we think that stuff like, you know, the virgin birth and the incarnation and uh, miracles and atonement and resurrection and ascension and all those things aren't so important. They were just the, the, the stories around which the teachings got stuck and the teachings are what's really important. We're Christians because we follow the teachings of Jesus. But if you go down into the poor neighborhoods in those cities and you find the churches there or you leave the city and you go to the little Pentecostal churches up in Appalachia or the little Baptist churches in the Mississippi Delta and so on, you can go to church there for 10 years and never meet anybody who says, I follow the teachings of Jesus. You know what you will hear? I follow Jesus. And that's a big difference. There's a huge difference there. And the people at those little poor churches... They're constantly talking about miracles and the supernatural and the blood of Christ. Oh my, who would want to talk about something so atrocious? And the resurrection and so on. And why is that? Well, most people in the rich churches, I think, believe something they don't want to say out loud. Well, not usually at least. Those people want to say that those people over in those poor churches, they just aren't as well educated or as sophisticated or as cosmopolitan as we are. And that's why they have to cling to these silly stories. They can't just simply talk about the teachings of Jesus. 
They have to bring in miracles and resurrection and atonement and all that sort of thing. But those people over there, they aren't sophisticated enough to know that what's really important are the teachings of Jesus. And this attitude is really all over the place. About 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more, there's a, a national conversation about government funding for faith-based initiatives. Maybe some of you remember that. And you go to the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and it was, should tax money be spent on faith-based solutions to social problems? And so you had a big conversation about it. What was interesting was the conversation was about the constitutionality of it because nobody questioned that faith-based initiatives help people who are broken and down and out. And even people who said the government shouldn't be funding these things said, well, of course, religion and faith helps people who are over there, people who are broken up and broken down and don't have anything, or on their last legs. Those people, religion really helps. And it seems like none of them ever thought, you know, religion might help me. You didn't read any of those editorials that ended up, maybe I'll go to church next week. Maybe, maybe they got something for me. Never, but oh, those people, oh, study after study shows that those people benefit from faith. They're right. Because those people benefit from faith. But it never occurs to them that they might benefit. And that gets to the point None of those answers has anything to do with education or sophistication or cosmopolitanism. It has to do with pride. I'm not one of those people who needs religion. But you see, the poor aren't so much in charge of their own lives as the rich people. They haven't got their lives so much under control. And the people who don't have much control over their life, the story of God becoming a human being the miracles, the resurrection, the ascension, the atonement, salvation, all that is really good news. The people who have their lives all under control just want an example to follow to be a better person. The people whose lives are out of control want a savior. They know they need a savior. People whose lives are turned upside down have given up on becoming a better person. They need help. And when they find out that someone has broken the barrier between God and humanity, that's good news. That the wall between chaos and disorder, between death and life has gone, and that this person offers salvation, that's good news. Not a better way to a better life, but a way to life. Who is the way to life? The way to be reconciled with God. It's easy for a rich person to identify themselves by their successes and it's easy for poor people to identify themselves by what they need. And the good news is for people who identify themselves by what they need. And if you say, I'm doing pretty good, I just need a good moral teacher to show me how to be a better person, well then the more you find out about Jesus, you'll be offended and scandalized. A parishioner sent me a link to an email, uh, email with a link to an editorial in the New York Times. And it was entitled, uh, What Would Jesus Say About Income Inequality? And I haven't read it yet. And I'm uh, grateful for it being sent. Okay. And I'll, I'll read it. And I'll, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to find something to think about. Okay. But I find it kind of puzzling. 
And in fact, the person who sent it to me said, uh, if, if, if Jesus makes the masthead of the New York Times editorial board, I'm going to celebrate. And I celebrate with her. But I think it's interesting. I'm not seeing editorials from the New York Times. What would Jesus say about lying? What would Jesus say about sexual immorality? What would Jesus say about calling politicians you disagree with fools? What would Jesus say about taking up your cross and following him? Now, why aren't those questions interesting? Granted, the question they picked was interesting, but I think if they started talking about those things, people would be offended and scandalized. Income inequality, that's safe. Sexual immorality, I don't want to talk about that. Lying, I don't want to talk about that. Don't tell me I can't hate a politician if I want to. It's America. But if you say I'm broken and I need God, I can point you to Jesus. If you say I'm broken and I need God, I'm going to point you to Jesus. I'm I'm not going to say here's a list of the teachings of Jesus. I'm going to point you to Jesus, the way. Now, of course, both the rich and the poor people can find Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, we find this, the answer. It's in the Beatitudes. You, you may have noticed that in Luke's telling of the, the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor. And in Matthew's telling, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They're really getting at the same thing. The point isn't economics. The point is an attitude. The point isn't a class structure. The point is an attitude. And it just happens to be the fact that we find this attitude far more often among the poor than we do among the rich. I mean, there's, this, there's just empirical evidence for this. It's not exclusive to class. It has to do with an attitude. Now think about this. I mean, we have a test case here. We know that the gospel exploded out of Jerusalem immediately after Jesus' resurrection. Well, 50 days later. And that both rich and poor people accepted it. We know this from the New Testament. We also know that more poor people than rich people accepted it. So now imagine going back in time, in your time machine. Make sure you have the ones that shoot out steam and whirl around because those are the best time machines. Imagine going back in time and take with you that sophisticated, educated, cosmopolitan, inoffensive modern Christianity and walk into a city anywhere in Rome and find some poor people. You're not going to have any trouble finding poor people in any city in Rome. And tell them, I want to tell you a story about a man who taught us some things. He showed us a way to a better life. He taught us that the world would be a better place if we all loved each other. If we worked for world peace. If we treated each other as neighbors. If we worked to reconcile different social classes that had become alienated from each other. If we just accepted each other's differences and worked together, we could make a better world. How many of the poor in that Roman city would fall to their knees and say, at last, a word of hope. I felt a sense of dignity I never felt before. But the apostles went out and told about a Jesus who broke the wall between God and humanity, between humans and God, and who promised reconciliation with God, not through following some pathway, but through his very existence. And he proved this with his resurrection from the dead. 
They went out and told poor people that story and the gospel burned rubber screeching around the world. The gospel is for people who are poor in spirit. And it just so happens that being economically poor seems to make that a lot easier. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Then Jesus tells it that those who accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and are open to his lordship are the least. And what does that mean? Well, Jesus tells us. Jesus says, who did you go out to see in the wilderness? You go out to see a little piece of grass blowing around? No, you went to see big old John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, in verse 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now first Jesus says, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But wait a second, what, isn't Jesus greater than John the Baptist? Yes, but Jesus hasn't even gotten started yet. He says, at this point, by judging my ministry to John the Baptist, at this point, he's, he's done more than I have. He hasn't been crucified and risen from the dead yet, okay? There's some big stuff coming. But John the Baptist is great. Wow, could that guy preach? No wonder Josephus is swept away with admiration for John the Baptist. Here's someone who pours his life into spreading a message of repentance. The best presentation ever of John the Baptist, past, present, our future, was Charlton Heston in The Greatest Story Ever Told. As only Charlton Heston could or ever should play a character as John the Baptist. If you just go to YouTube and type in uh, Charlton Heston, John Baptist, you'll, it'll, it'll come up a two minute montage of the big John the Baptist scenes. Just watch that to get the, the thing. But it closes up the last time John the Baptist, he doesn't actually appear in the scene. Herod is standing there. He's looking down the, the prison hallway. He's ordered John the Baptist to be beheaded. And there's utter silence. And Herod is standing there and then you hear, repent! That's powerful. Right up to the end, the sword goes up and he bellows out, repent. Wow. And yet, Jesus says the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says the most righteous, devoted, moral, the greatest preacher of all time is below the least in the kingdom of God. And how can he say that? Well, he gives us a clue here. He said, in fact, it is a clue because he says, right after he says, he says, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. He says, if you, if you believe it, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. And he means this, I think, in two senses. There's the prophecy that a, a figurative Elijah would appear before the Messiah. This is a prophecy made in, in Micah. Elijah, if you read the, the book of Kings, dresses in camel hair and has a leather belt, just like John the Baptist did. But I think there's more to it even than that. Elijah is a prophet who burns with a call for repentance. And he burns with a call to see God's judgment fall on sinners. We read in our epistle reading today about he prayed for three years that there wouldn't be any rain. That'll show those sinners. At one point in Elijah's career, he's all alone sitting under a tree and he's depressed and he's despondent and he says, am I the only one who 
God's got left? Am I the only one who wants to see judgment fall? Can you picture John the Baptist in the same situation alone in his prison cell? Am I the only one left who wants to see God's judgment on these sinners? The guy I thought the Messiah came and he didn't bring it. But it's in that time when Elijah is alone and saying, am I the only one? Why isn't God working that God shows up in an earthquake, in fire, in mighty wind? But God wasn't in any of those things. There was only a still, small voice. And the message is, Elijah, if you want God's judgment to fall on sinners, God's judgment is going to fall on you. And John the Baptist, Jesus is saying, if you want God's judgment to fall on sinners, God's judgment is going to fall on you. The most righteous, devoted, moral, the greatest preacher, preacher of all time is below the least, no, let's use modern words, the worst person in the kingdom of God. The worst person in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. The most morally depraved, evil, sinful, disgusting person in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And how could that wicked, evil, worst person enter the kingdom of God? Well, the same way you and I can enter the kingdom of God through the atonement of Christ on the cross when all that wrath and judgment Elijah and John the Baptist called for fell on Jesus on that crucifixion day. The good news is for those who are spiritually poor, those who can't point to their own moral greatness or their spiritual devotion or their great preaching. Those are the ones who know they need Jesus. And how can that be? How can it be that the worst person in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist? That's only because the worst person who's in the kingdom of God bears the righteousness of Christ. Christ is the greatest person in the kingdom of God and the least person in the kingdom of God bears Christ's righteousness. The least is equal to the greatest. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. How many times does Jesus tell us that and what is he saying? The worst person can have the righteousness of Christ through the atonement that Christ won for us on the cross. It's only when the righteousness of Christ is transferred to the worst of person that person can enter the kingdom of God and become greater than John the Baptist. Father, give us all a spirit of spiritual poverty. In Jesus' name, amen.